Well, I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you've not done so already. We're going to be continuing our study through 1 Timothy over the next number of weeks. Then, Lord willing, um, we will be uh, spending a prolonged season in uh, 2 Samuel uh, during the year of 2020. Right now, today, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, considering this morning verses 1 through 8. I don't watch much sports, or particularly professional sports, outside of baseball, but last week I caught a number of football games, and one particularly uh, piqued my interest. Um, if you watch much football, apparently last week the, the so-called Washington football team uh, did not do so well against their opponents. It was a quite uh, un, un, uh, uneven match. Uh, they were quite overwhelmed by their opponent. And during the game, a number of players, noticeably frustrated with themselves because of their performance, they were being clobbered by the other team. Uh, the teammates began to kind of point fingers. It was your fault why we're losing so poorly. And a, and a fight broke out. And this is not really quite unheard of for, for many professional sports. There's a lot of testosterone, perhaps, of flowing through those sidelines, and, and, uh, and they, these uh, teammates begin to wrestle with one another, maybe throw punches at one another. It was, a, it was quite a scene. Um, and afterwards, no doubt, the, the media wanted to, to interview the players involved in the scuffle to see exactly what was at the heart of it. And one of the players responded to the media and says, listen, brothers fight. There's nothing to this. We're just brothers fighting. It was a reminder to me that sometimes families fight, not to settle a score, but to express their discouragement and, frankly, to express their love. What this one particular football player was saying was, hey, I might have punched the guy, but I still love him. He's my teammate. Now, I don't believe the Bible's advocating us as Christians to go around punching people, nor is that the point of my illustration, but it is a reminder that sometimes we have disagreements. Sometimes as Christians we have arguments. Sometimes as Christians we disagree. No doubt this pandemic has given us occasion to often disagree with one another about how we might want to approach it. But nonetheless, we're still brothers and sisters. And this particular theme is an important one that Paul is going to draw attention to. These are called house codes. The households in the first century were much different than our households, Both, but maybe for you, very similar. They were more than just a mom and a dad and some kids. It often included grandparents. It often included extended family. Uh, oftentimes, it would include a, a house servant, those living there in the household. A household unit was very important. It was more than a nuclear family. It was the center of life. Everything revolved around family. Family had a high value. And Paul here in the latter half of 1 Timothy turns to address this particular issue of family. To deal with what was, as we'll come to see next week more clearly, that there was an issue with the families in the churches. And the one key word that you'll find throughout chapter 5 and into chapter 6 is the word honor. The word honor. Paul is writing to Timothy and says, listen, I want you to teach that church to honor one another, to value one another, to see that they are not individual families or individual households, but they are a family together. 
And so throughout this section, Paul here is going to be exhorting these households uh, to love one another, to care for one another. He's going to move through three specific groups from a general exhortation that we ought to love one another to a more specific application that we ought to care for widows in the church. We're going to touch on that very briefly this week and get more deep into it next week about the church's responsibility to care for widows. We'll see Paul spend a lengthy time dealing with the elders of the church, not the older people of the church, but the pastors of the church, that the church was to honor those in leadership. What does it look like to honor those in authority over you? And then lastly, we'll see that we are to care as we'll see the relationships of a slave and a master. And for us, in, in the implications and the practical application for us in the 21st century, is how do we relate to those in authority over us in the workplace? How do we relate to bosses and, and those under us? And how do we care and exemplify Christ well? So this morning we're going to consider verses 1 through 8. So again, if you've not turned there, I invite you to do that so now. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Paul says, Do not... Rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has, a, has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What is Paul's point? Well, there's some clear implications of this passage. That Christians are individual members of the family of God. And that that family is expressed through a shared life together in a local gathering of believers called a church. Simply put, Christians are a family. Christianity is a family of blood-bought brothers and sisters. Mothers and fathers. Grandparents Aunts and uncles, we're a spiritual family, and so we should act like it. That's Paul's point in this latter half, that we ought to act like we are. And so he's going to argue, first theologically, that we are family, that we're brothers and sisters, and we ought to treat one another as such. And then there's some implications of that, particularly considered around widows and elders and, and those in servant ministries. This morning we see, as Paul is writing again to a pastor, he's writing to Timothy, he's, he's the pastor of the church there in Ephesus, and he's been sent down there to deal with false teachers, to deal with the asceticism, the false teaching. He was to do that by, by rightly teaching the word, by rightly teaching right doctrine and right living. Remember, Paul just dealt with the right living. He told Timothy, he says, listen, here's what you need to do. Don't, don't let them despise you because you're a young man, but here's what you do. You set the believers an example. You be an example to the flock. You teach them well and you live well before them. And so here, in thinking about teaching and preaching ministry, the, the, the responsibilities to preach and teach faithfully, we see first 
Timothy was to teach them to treat the members like family. He was to treat the congregation like they were his family. And we'll see this morning that that's our responsibility, not only as pastors, but also as members, to treat one another like family. Secondly, here we see that we, are, that, that we are to teach families to care well for their own. One of the responsibilities of pastoral ministry is to teach families in the congregation to care well for their own. And we'll consider very briefly, and again next week, delve in a little bit deeper here to this particular ministry to widows in our church. Number one, we see that we ought to treat the members of our church like family. Look here at verses one and two. What, what does he say? He tells young Timothy not to rebuke an older man, but to encourage him. The word there to rebuke means to strike at with words, a, a literal, a verbal lashing. He says, listen, don't go to an older man and lash him down. Don't, don't, right? Now remember the context. Timothy is going into a difficult situation. He was going to have to correct. He was going to have to exhort. He was going to have to encourage. He was going to have to, as we see, command. And so what Paul is after here is how he goes about that. He wasn't just to go down there and start throwing punches around and getting people in line that way. But he was to encourage. He was to respect his elders. He was to treat those older than him with respect. Now, we dealt with this a number of weeks ago. But again, young Timothy's in his, in his early to mid-30s. In a culture that highly respected and highly valued those in their 50s and 60s. But Timothy was not to go down there and bully the congregation into, into obedience, but encourage them. The word means to urge or to exert or to comfort. He was to, he was to shepherd them. You know, so often those in, in, in leadership tend to be authoritarian, right? They, they dictate rather than lead. Lead by example, remember? Be an example to the flock, young Timothy. Be an example to them. Show them how to follow Christ and then call them, encourage them to do the same. Timothy was to treat them well. Not rebuke, but encourage. But, but notice what he says. He goes on. As you would a father. That word as means literally like. It has a deep uh, meaning, a deeper fidelity. That Paul here is pointing to the familial relationship that exists between the individual members of the church. As a father. The standard by which Timothy was to approach these older men was be that they were his father. Well, surely young Timothy wouldn't have, wouldn't have verbally struck his father. He wouldn't have lashed out as his father or his mother or brother or sister. This is similar to what Paul exhorts the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, imitate God as beloved children. In other words, act like who you already are. Treat one another like a family, Timothy, because you are a family. Paul isn't just merely using a metaphor here. Paul is pointing to the deeper relationships that now exist among God's people because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We are no longer far, we just read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, but we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're a family, brothers and sisters. In John 1 verse 12, 
But to all who did receive him, who believes in his name, he, that is God, gave the right to become children of God. In our secular society, many will say that everyone's a child of God. That's not true. Not at all. We're all children of Adam. Descendants of Adam. Adam is our daddy. Until we're adopted by our Heavenly Father. And the transaction of adoption is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We become adopted. We become, he gave the right to become children of God. Or as Timothy said earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Look back there just for a moment. It's on the same page, no doubt. Chapter 3, verse 15. He says, if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave where in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here, Paul describes the church as a household. Whose household? God's household. In other words, you could say it this way. We are in God's family. Or as in that text in Ephesians 2 that I read from earlier, it goes on to say in verse 19, For through Jesus, we both, that is Jew and Gentile, both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see that language? The Father. Well, if you read your Old Testament, there is very little reference in the Old Testament to God as Father. The Jews would not have naturally called. So this is something happened here. There's a relational change that has taken place to the work of Christ. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members, here it is again, of the household of God. Or consider Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, the New Testament presents Christianity not as a sort of lone ranger individual faith. You know, sadly, in American evangelicalism, this this personal relationship with Jesus stuff was overemphasized in detriment to our relationship with one another. It was all about me coming and having a personal devotion time with Jesus, closing my eyes in worship and me and Jesus just jamming out together. But it's really more about this horizontal, this one another. So throughout the, throughout the New Testament, you have this, this language of one another, this reciprocal love that you, I love you and you love me. But also this language of brother and sister, this Adelphoi language that we are brothers and sisters. So this isn't some sort of southern uh, greeting. Hey, brother, how you doing? No, this is this is genuinely theological but sadly we don't go beyond brothers and sisters and what paul is saying is this is more than just brothers and sisters it's about grandmas and grandpas mothers and fathers and sons and daughters you see if everyone's just an equal a brother or a sister then there is no hierarchy there is no authority there's no spiritual giants in your life everyone's just an equal they're a brother or they're a sister Not what Paul says here. Look again. He says, as you would a father. A father has authority. A father has respect. Dignity. 
There's, there was to be men in Timothy's life that he looked up to like a father. He was to go into Ephesus, not lording it over, but finding those that he himself would submit to. Notice here, younger men as brothers. He was to treat the younger men in the church as brothers. He was to care for them the way he would care for his own brothers, his own flesh and blood. He was to look out for their spiritual well-being. He was to care for their souls. He, would, he wasn't so concerned about, about the weather and their favorite sports teams. He was really more concerned about whether or not his brother was going to make it to heaven or not. Older women as mothers. Young Timothy, as he went into that church, was to find mothers that would care for him, care for his spiritual soul. He knew what it was like to have a good spiritual mom, didn't he? Because he had a physical mother, which was also a spiritual mother, and he had a grandmother who was a spiritual mother, but also a physical grandmother. But then he finishes here in verse 2, and he says, younger women as sisters. He was to treat the women, the younger women in the church, the, maybe the, his own contemporary uh, age women and those younger than him as sisters. He was to protect them, care for them, love them, guard them in all purity, Paul says. Interestingly enough, he adds this prepositional phrase there on the end when referring to sisters. This word purity doesn't merely mean moral purity, but sexual purity. He was to guard and protect them as a bigger brother, not turn these sisters into an object of his own lusts. How many ministries would have been saved if, they, if pastors would have only obeyed that verse right there? Timothy was to care for each individual member as a family member. But by implication, listen, they were to treat him on the reciprocal end. Fathers were to treat Timothy as a son. Other men in the church were to treat him as a brother. Older women were to treat him as a, as a younger son. Younger women as a brother in the faith. You see, it wasn't a one-way street. This letter isn't just written just to Timothy. The church would have heard about this family relationship, about how you and I are a family and reminded them that they ought to care for one another. They ought to treat one another. This implies, I believe, intimacy and personal knowledge and care. You cannot have a mother or father that you don't know. There is no estranged spiritual mothers, fathers, sons and daughters in the church of the living God. That means we got to know each other. I think it also implies that the pastor has to stick around a little while. As I mentioned uh, last week or the, maybe the week before, the average tenure in, in, in just in our denomination is two years. Two years. This is not long enough. Not long enough to develop a relationship where you might call one a mother or a father or a son or a daughter. It implies an intimacy in our relationship, not only with the pastors of the church, but with one another. We ought to care for one another. We ought to guard one another as a family. We ought to see one another as a, as a genuine mother or father or son or daughter or, or sister or brother. We ought to treat them, care for them in that way. We wouldn't cast out our own family. We ought to show mutual respect. If you see 
a family member, a biological family member in sin. Do you grieve? Are you broken by it? Well, how much more your spiritual family when you see them caught and entangled in sin or discouraged or weary or prideful or arrogant? Whatever sins that befall us, we ought to care for one another in this way. We ought to be concerned, again, not, not lashing out at one another, but encouraging one another. Caring for one another as a family. A friend, I hope that we would see one another as a family and so therefore treat one another in such a way. But Paul does not go, doesn't leave it there generally. He goes specifically. One of the ways that we care for one another as a family is caring for those most vulnerable in our families. And who would those be? Those would be the widows of the church. Paul goes on to say, listen, honor widows who are truly widows. He says, Timothy, I want you to go down there to Ephesus and I want you to teach the families to care well for their own. I want you to teach those rotten scoundrels to care for their moms and dads and particularly for their moms. I want you to honor widows who are truly widows. Paul begins by saying that, that, that we ought to learn to honor widows. Now the word honor doesn't mean to parade around or, or to, to worship. To honor means to value. To show her worth. Widows, Paul says, are a gift to the church which must be stewarded by the church. They are a valuable gift to the life of the church. Now, we're going to think more about that in deeper ways next week in, in verses 9 through 16 in the way uh, Paul here speaks about the, the way widows care for the local church. Why uh, are they so good? And, and I'll tell you right now, uh, one of the things I tell our young church planners and why I am I th- blessed is because we have widows. And young churches often have mainly young people. They don't have widows. And I, and I said, hey, you, your ministry is not complete until you have them because they are a blessing to your church. They can do things uh, that y'all just can't do. Um, but we ought to learn to honor them, to value them, to see that they are, they're, they're, not, they're not an obstacle in your way, but they are, nor are they a means to the end, but they are, are, are a, a gift to be stewarded Honor widows. Now, in this particular context, widows would have been particularly susceptible to harm. In our particular culture, it's a little bit different. We do have, obviously, social safety nets in our culture, in our, in our country particularly, uh, though that doesn't cover everyone. And so there are particular needs that, that the church may have. But, but in this particular case, in, in this first century context, this was an important thing. You see, a, a woman, when, when she married her husband, would have had a dowry, and that would have been all she had. And, and once her husband died, she would have really had nothing. She would have been left with nothing but, but, but just a few meager rations that, that she was to live on. And so if her children chose not to care for her, she would have been cast into the wider society. More than that, it was wrong to assume that these are all senior adults. This, of course, is a very different time where war and disease would have, would have, would have wiped out entire villages and very particularly younger congregations or younger widows, rather. Younger, younger men, and, and so there would have been younger widows, which is what we'll, we'll see again in more detail next week. So don't just assume that, that Paul here is talking about senior adult women whose husbands have died. Not at all. 
He's talking about women, of course, that, that, whose husbands have died and who are particularly vulnerable. But notice how he describes them as those who are truly widows. In other words, those who don't have children who care for them. Before we get to that, notice what he goes on to say in verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, that is the children or grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents. In other words, he says, listen, I want you to go down there and teach that church. I want you to teach those family members to learn to show godliness. To acquire knowledge, to learn about something, to learn. In other words, Paul is saying that it will not come natural to your members to care for their widows and their family. They have to be taught, he says. They have to be taught. And he says that, that they need to make some return, some reciprocity. It means to pay back, to return an investment which was made. In other words, those Widows invested in the life of those children, and therefore they should pay back and give back. Well, what does that sound like, friends? Well, it sounds like Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land of the Lord. You know, so often we think about that, that as, as a verse that we use to, to, to twist our little kids' arms to obey us. Now, honor, God said, honor your mom and dad, and you need to honor me. But we think that like once kids turn 18, that like verse is no longer applicable in, in the lives of people. Friend, that is American culture being put upon you right there. You, is it that is what it is. Just because you, you, you're, you're, you're old don't mean that, right? We still have to honor our parents. We still have to show Dylan. Now it's going to look differently than when we're in their home versus when we're not in their home. But we ought to honor. And so Paul says here, listen, I want you to go down there and tell the the those children and grandchildren who are probably grown by now to provide and care for the widows that are truly widows, those that are truly in need of financial support. I want you to care for them. Notice the theological reason, verse 4. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. You see, the Old Testament speaks about a God in this way, our God, De Deuteronomy 10, 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Or Isaiah chapter one and verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct, correct oppression, bring justice to him, the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. You see, our God is a God who provides for the fatherless and the widow. He cares about widows. You, you want to make God mad? You want, to front, you, you, you want God's displeasure upon your life? Then neglect to care for your own family members. Neglect to care for your elderly and need, needy family members. Don't honor your parents when they need you the most. Consider in Acts chapter 6. And that very well-known passage where what we would consider the first prototypical deacons. What was the situation there? Well, it was widows being neglected in the daily distribution of food. You see, one of the things happened is Jew, Jewish women that were widows would go to their local synagogue for food distribution and any type of monetary support. It was kind of like... Social security for, for senior adults or for widows in the first century. But here's the problem. 
when a widow became a Christian, she was cut off from the from access to that food and daily distribution. The Jews were like, oh no, you, you abandoned the faith. You, you abandoned God. You're worshiping some other God now. And so it was, a, it was a dire situation in the early church is that they have these widows that needed food. And so they provided for them. Or consider what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pure and undefiled religion is to care for widows. Teach the families, Timothy, to learn to honor widows, to provide for their own. Well, he goes on then in verses 5 and 6 to to make sure the church understands. Now, perhaps Timothy has written Paul. Perhaps, rather, the congregation has written Paul and says, listen, we've got a problem going on in Ephesus. We have a widow ministry issue here. Uh, Our widows, uh, we don't know what's happening here. It's such a problem. We have women in our registry that we're, we're providing for. We can't provide for. We don't know what to do. They're young women. They seem to be doing well. Some of them... Uh, seem to do really well, apparently, on our, uh, prov- our care of them. We're, we've apparently given them so much money that they have, they're living these luxurious lives, and we simply do not have the resources. What is our responsibility, Paul? And so part of this is Paul's instruction to the church in Ephesus to give them a portrait of what a true widow is. Notice here, verse first and verse 5, a true widow is one who is left alone. Left all alone. In other words, she has no familial support, no children, no grandchildren to provide for her. Secondly, we see that a portrait of a true widow is one who is confident in the faith. She's a, she's a godly woman. Her hope, he says, is set on God. Her, she has set her hope on God. She's trusting God. God is going to provide. That God that we just read about, our God, the one who is the God of the fatherless and the widow, That's who her hope is on, that God will provide. But she's also faithful. Notice the language Paul uses there. She continues, continues. It's an ongoing activity, ongoing. And he bookends it night and day. She continues in supplication and prayers night and day. Not only does she live a godly life, but she's persistently trusting the Lord through prayer. She's a prayer warrior. And she's not self-indulgent. Look there at verse 6. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. The word there, self-indulgent, means to live a life of luxury. This has not only a practical but, well, spiritual application, doesn't it? If this widow is living in luxury, then she will be of a greater burden to those who are supporting her. Right. If she's just being frivolous with with the resources that those in her care, then. Paul says, no, not at all. She must be prudent. A woman who is wise in the way she cares. So Paul wants to make sure that those who are cared for are those who are godly women who are living lives for God's glory and not their own. And he rounds this out. This is identified not only what they're to learn, but who they're to care for. 
And he, man, he puts the fist down here in verses 7 and 8. Look what he says. He says, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. In other words, how a church cares for their widows has an evangelistic impact. In other words, the world is watching. That that language of above reproach is, is the language of someone outside looking in and seeing how one cares for their own. And he develops the argument there in verse 8. Look what he says. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his own relatives and especially his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, he says, look, you don't care for your family. You're an apostate unbeliever. You're no Christian. What a heavy hand. What a serious then task. Paul is heavy handed because this has, I believe, huge gospel impact. You think about the way a church cares for a widow has has little tentacles that go out into the wider community. Because they are so vulnerable, it is so noticeable. I mean, just imagine for a minute if one of our members who's known in our community is destitute and dying because we're unwilling to care for him. Do you not think that might get around? He says that we ought to care for our own family. How can we claim the name of Jesus and not care for those in need? How can we take the benefits of eternal life, but yet reject and say, I don't need others? And friend, like it or not, when you believed upon Christ, so came all the crazy uncles and all the responsibilities that go with it. Caring for widows, caring for orphans. I think as Christians and as a congregation, we ought to value those who are most vulnerable. Friend, as a congregation, we want to see that widows matter in the life of our church. They can do things that, frankly, a lot of y'all can't because you got jobs. They serve our church in ways that by praying, not taking up with domestic responsibilities. They're able to to do things that free them up and they give their time and service, whether it be physically or through prayer. I mean, I know of so many stories within our own little church of way our widows minister to the wider body that is unknown to most of our members. They are truly a gift. We ought not to see them as getting in the way, but see them as an important part of furthering the mission of our church is a way that you and I get to show godliness and care by providing. Consider in your own family, are you doing well to provide for widows in your own family? Now, again, in our wider culture, that may not be as dire and drastic. Though in certain contexts, it may be that we have a particular case where, where we have to financially support a widow in our church. But in our society, there are some groups of people, particularly single mothers, that are vulnerable, that do need care and do need help. 
and that as a church we can provide for. We ought to see that when we provide and care for others, and particularly for widows and those that are in need, that we are reflecting God's character through our love for them. When we care for one another, when we sacrificially minister to the body of Christ, we are displaying God's character to those around us. Friend, this morning, if you are a widow, do you see that your character matters? Paul goes at your character here. He says that a true widow, one that's worthy of honor, is one whose hope is set on God. One who is steadfast and diligent in prayer and one who is not self-indulgent. Oh, sister, guard your heart from the temptations that the, that the enemy would lay upon you. Continue doing what you have done so well. A model for us of what it really looks like to hope on God. When you're left all alone, when you have no one, when you're all alone, when there's sleepless nights, lonely nights, know and be a continual model for us of what faithfulness looks like. Oh, sisters, you are a model to me when I see the way you press on to the end, even when you're lonely, discouraged and tired. Brothers and sisters, let us care for one another as a family. Let's not see those that need our care as a burden to us. Let's not grow weary in doing good, but continually entrusting ourselves to our God who is good. He will provide. Let us learn that we are, yes, individual members, but we are a part of a family. And so let us care for one another for God's glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning. That we might continue to be a good family. Caring for one another. Loving one another. Father I just pray right now for these dear sisters. That are widows in our church. Thank you for each and every one of them. Thank you for the way that they demonstrate and display. What hope looks like. Thank you for the way that they are diligent. And praying for me. And the other pastors and leaders. And each individual members, the way they give their, their time to serve behind the scenes, not up front. The way they give themselves sacrificially to their families and to their faith family. Oh, Father, help us to give you glory in these ways. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.